0: Hello and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist Podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question. Did you hear about the pinniped that became friends with a polar bear? His fate was sealed. Are penguins and puffins similar? No, they're polar opposites. Polyglot and multiple degree holder Constance Chauré joins us on the podcast today. What are these multiple degrees, you ask? She has an undergrad, two master's degrees, and she's currently working on her PhD. In this super wide-ranging episode, we chat about how Constance went from a degree in history to studying marine science and then marine conservation, how growing up next to a marine protected area influences her work now and how she's brought it full circle. We also chat about the differences between French, English, and American university systems, Constance has experienced all three, and when a university will actually kick you out. (laughs) Constance recently co-authored a publication with British Ecological Society about 30 by 30, and she shares just what that means and how we're looking. Constance shares three pretty amazing field stories at the end of the episode, so be sure to stay tuned for that. Please enjoy. Constance, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Hi, I'm really excited as well. I've been
1: really looking forward to this.
0: So we're going to start at the beginning. You grew up on the coast of
1: France. What was that like? I've spent, I kind of grew up in a number of places, but Mm -hmm. my hometown my home home is um is in northern Brittany um on the on on the coast so it's on the English Channel uh, side, and um or what we call la Mort, uh, because we're not we're not English, um and um yeah I grew up there I I was fortunate fortunate enough to grow up um really in front of a massive marine protected area um or MPA I'm talking about MPAs so just get that acronym out of there, um and uh, no I mean. I grew up going out fishing and spending time on my dad's boat and you know we like swimming and doing cliff diving and all these you know activities that you would do when you when you grow up by the ocean but also um really being sensitive to the fact that like this is an amazing resource um yeah <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's really cool. So is that kind of what inspired you to head into a career of science, like playing in the ocean growing up?
1: Um, actually, my first degree is in history. Yeah. So yeah, um, I don't think I realized I didn't realize until my last year at uni that you could actually go into conservation, like that that was a thing. Um this was in the early yeah like early 2010s ish like late yeah so um I knew about Jacques Cousteau and and all that but um I only realized it way too late so I couldn't change my major at that time um I had taken enough science classes but I wasn't able to change so I was able to then get into a master's program um, in environmental policy at Sciences Po in Paris um which needed a scientific background for so thank God I had taken enough science classes at that time to, um, to be able to qualify for that program. But, um, but yeah, it it wasn't until, um, yeah, my last year of uni that I realized that this was something I was, that I could do. I was interested already, but I didn't realize it was like a job that you could have working in conservation. As far as I was concerned, conservation was just, you know, NGOs and like Greenpeace type of like actions, um, Mm -hmm not so much doing like scientific research around it. um. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. That makes total sense. Yeah. It's something that, you know, it gets highlighted more and more for sure, but a lot, a lot of people still don't understand that it doesn't have to like mm-hmm. the science helps support the conver- conservation rather. Right. Like if we don't have the science backing it up, it's just, it just lends a lot more weight behind it, so it makes it's awesome. So why history then? Were you a huge history buff growing up? yeah,
1: yeah I'm I, I was and I still am. Um, I love I still read like historical fiction or even biographies and all that. but um I guess I wanted to be a teacher at first and I and I really liked he, uh, liked history and my dad's a professor well was a professor he's retired now um, uh, uh, in economics. and so I thought, well, that sounds good. I will become a history teacher. And, uh, yeah. that's why I went into history. And then, uh, because I did my undergrad in the United States, um, at the University of Massachusetts, uh, at Lowell, I, uh, which is completely different from the French and, uh, British system. There was, um, I can't remember, were they called like general education requirements or some, yes. basically that's then, why there's, yeah, yeah, there, yeah, there was a, ge- there was an extra year at uni. Um, and so, and I just took a bunch of science classes and so, um, that's yeah. So like I said, I was not until the last year where I realized, oh, I think I messed up here. Um, It was too late. But fortunately, I had about half. I had half a degree's worth of science credits and that helped, you know, get me. I, actually, I plan on finishing a degree in biology at some point when I finish my PhD just to have it under my belt. Um, You know, it sounds a bit like overkill, but it is something I just I'm passionate about doing.
0: Wait, you were going to get your. PhD in history and then get a
1: bio. No, That's that's really my-
0: zealous. Like,
1: <laughs> no, no, I'm doing my PhD right now. Right. um right, okay. yeah. I'm doing my PhD in marine science right now. Um, okay. but once I finish my PhD, I would very much like to, you know, see that whole the, all those science credits through. And um, I still have, like, I think, a year out of a of a bachelor's degree in biology. So, I'm gonna do that after <laughs> when I'm done with my PhD. Just okay. for for Just the crack. For yeah, for the crack. That's-, <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: amazing. So actually, could you go back and explain a little bit of the difference between like the French and the American schooling system, at least at the university level?
1: Yeah. So I I did both my master's degrees in France, so it's obviously different. Um, but the undergrad in France is three years compared to in the United States is four years, and there are no mm-hmm. general education requirements are gen eds I think you said um basically go in knowing what your major is and obviously that will decide what university you go to because some of the universities are specialized in the arts and some of them in the humanities and others would be in like the sciences or um, engineering and so um so that's why it's only three years you don't learn around your subject you just learn you know, what you what you what you're there for. So obviously it makes it more difficult to like transfer out or or um you just need to know what actually you need to know in France uh two years before you finish high school what pathway you're taking. So when you're 16, you decide are you doing L, which is literary, ES, which is economic and social sciences, or S, which is sciences. And so from that, that trajectory will tell you if you, you know, if you're gonna do a bachelor's degree in Mathematics or in biology or one in history or one in um you know literature, so yeah it's um it it doesn't have the kind of freedom I think that the American system has at that level where you can show up not really having declared a major um in the United States and then kind of figure it out through all those gen general education requirement classes. some people know what they want to do some people change majors, some people get minors those things don't uh don't apply um in traditional French university system so interesting
0: so that's really funny it just seems like a lot of like coming from the american system i'm like that seems like a lot of pressure on a 16 year old like figure out what you want to do right now like holy bananas but so for me i like i knew i wanted to go straight into marine biology and those gen ed classes drove me bananas i'm like i don't want to learn about classical theory of music (laughs) i don't care um so yeah i i see both sides of the coin i do (laughs) that's interesting though
1: yeah, and well there is one thing that I think is interesting about the French and the British system is that you don't need to go to uni. And so you can leave school at mm. sixteen um and then go into like a professional or technical schooling. Mm. Um mm. and and a lot of people do that because not not everyone's destined for uni and mm. um and or or doesn't they can go later on, they don't need to do the baccalaureate or your A levels. Um so they it's it's a bit different. At sixteen you you could technically just leave school and go and get a job or an apprenticeship and then do that for the rest of your life. Um, So um, it's a bit different. Or get a
0: job and an apprenticeship and then decide later you want to go to uni and go back. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Okay. Very (laughs) cool. But
1: you knew you wanted to go to, why, why in the U S? My dad was uh, teaching over there. He was a professor at Tufts university. Yeah. And I was originally planning on, going um either back to France or to Canada for uh for uni but then for some health issues I, I had to stay close by um in mm-hmm. Massachusetts so I um I stayed there and I went to so UMass and um and no I was I mean it was great I got the like full American experience of mm-hmm. uni which was a uh, which is so so much different from like where I'm because now I'm in a British system and before that I was in the French system so um yeah I got I got to try a little bit of everything which is nice
0: Yeah. Okay. So I like really want to get into the MPAs in your work, but this like difference between all of the country systems is like really interesting to me. So could you explain some of the differences that you've observed between like the French, English and American systems?
1: Yeah. So I'm, I was actually just chatting to, um, one of my friends who's uh, doing, she's also, she's doing her PhD in France. So I'm doing yeah. it in the UK. So, so it, at that point, so it's already different. I'm um, comparing that with my friends who are doing their PhDs in the United States. Um, mm-hmm. So we were talking about the quals. I think that's what they're called. We don't have those, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to finish in a set of years. Um, so like for my PhD, oh. I have four years full-time. That's it. After four years, oh. I have it. And that's, otherwise that's, that's it. Um you're not kicked out. You're kicked you're, out? You're, you're not, I didn't want to say you're kicked out, but you're kicked out. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. so, get on uh, or get out. <laughs> yeah, if you do, I mean, if you have extenuating circumstances, of course you can interrupt and, you know, but the point is you have to submit by, you know, by the time it's uh, it's a set time. It's not like you can do your PhD in five years or anything like that. And when you start a PhD in the UK um, and in France, you have a master's degree already. Like you don't, you know, it's not, it's not a build on. So, um, Mm -hmm. so that narrows it down and you don't have to take additional courses or anything like that. There's no exams to pass. The only thing you have is what we call in the UK, an upgrade, which is like a mini, mini Viva. Um, so after the first 18 months of your, uh, when you're P uh, of the start of your PhD, I'm saying this in full-time, obviously not for part-time. You just double it. Um, but then you pass um your upgrade, which is uh basically you have to show all the work you've done in the last 18 months, um, have like a, at least an introductory introduction chapter, a lit review chapter. If you've been fortunate enough to publish a chapter, include that. And then you pass, you know, a VIVA, like an oral VIVA with an external uh, um, external examiner that's within the department. Um so they're not external to um the uni, but they're external to you as and they're not your supervisors. Um, I'm two supervisors some people have more but it's usually two supervisors at least um so where where i understand from the american system it's completely different it's a much longer process Um, my dad did his phd in the united states um but again he did an econ so it's a bit different Um, i actually don't even remember it might have been business management one of those things um but yeah his and his was obviously in the 70s. So I'm, I think it's probably different now as well. Um, but yeah, so it's just interesting hearing about the different types of, um, you know, uh, hoops that we have to jump through as uh, as PhDs. And I don't have any experience doing a master's in the United States at all. Um, so I, I can't comment on that at all. all. Both of my master's have been in France and I did a postgraduate diploma in Scotland um, so that's pretty much a master's degree without the dissertation because I haven't gotten around to that. So,
0: <laughs> okay, so you're gonna go back and get around to that when you go back and get your bachelor's in biology. So just gonna yeah fill, fill in, yeah
1: I'm that. doing it, I'm doing it backwards kind of. I just I'm somebody who really enjoys learning and um, and I think what's really great um, nowadays is that you can do all these things online, um, you know, with mm-hmm. some residential schooling. Um, so having to go to a lab for a week or something like that, but a lot of it can be done online and part-time. So working around your schedule. Um, so like the, the bachelor's degree is with the U- open university. So I know that you had somebody, um, was, was, she from Jersey who was on, um, talking about, um, the OU and the mm-hmm. OU is really popular in the UK. And so, um, you know, that basically it's, it's designed for people who work full time to be able to follow a degree, um, part time. So having that, I think is really great for anybody. Like my dad's talking about going to law school at 75, just again, for the crack, like just for fun, because that's something he's always wanted to do. And now you can do that because you can do that from, you know, from your own home. So yeah, yeah.
0: That's awesome. So it's a learning family. You guys just really enjoy it.
1: That's so cool. And <laughs> yeah, now I feel like people are going to start judging and be like, she's insane.
0: <laughs> no, whatever.
1: You enjoy it. You're
0: enjoying it. That's the thing of it, right? Like as long as you're having fun, you know, Every different strokes for different folks. <laughs> okay. So, so did you know, like you found out partway through your bachelor's that like you could have this career in conservation. So like, that's when you were like, I'm definitely getting my master's. Did you know then you were going to get your PhD too?
1: So it's funny. Cause I actually found like one of those Facebook memories that said, when I finished my first master's, I was like, I'm done with school. <laughs> <laughs> Little did I know. Mm-hmm. Sweet summer child. Um, No, so I, um, I, so at first I start, as soon as I finished my first master's, I went straight to work for um, a company called Dassault Systems. It's a French company, software company. I was working there in their sustainable innovation lab, doing a lot of like environmental sustainability kind of things and, um, you know, carbon audits and and, and whatnot. And then um, I spent a few years in industry and I realized it really wasn't for me. Um, So I just. A lot of greenwashing, a lot of marketing and, and, and stuff that I just didn't really understand very well. Cause I wasn't, I wasn't trained or, you know, for corporate life. And then I was in the United States at the time. And I actually had started doing, um, some, a biology degree, um, at Harvard extension, um, because I, w- I wanted to go back to school. I was like, no, this is not enough for me. I need, I need more. And I wanted to do a PhD, but I needed more, um, like um, experience. So, um, at that time for family reasons, personal reasons, I decided I needed to move back to France and, um, and it was way more interesting price-wise, um, you know, to mm. for for schooling. So, um, so I did, I had applied to a bunch of universities for PhDs and I didn't get in and that happens. Um, so I rethought, like, you know, what am, what am I trying to achieve here with the PhD? At first I was kind of dabbling in environmental health and, then I really honed in on the conservation. Again, it kind of came back in a push. I don't know how to uh, explain. Um, but yeah, so then I moved back to France and then I got—I was fortunate enough to get into this program at the Institute of Geography from the Sorbonne. Um, and that's where I was like, right, now I'm going to reapply for PhDs now that I have you know these two masters, work experience under my belt, all this, and I have a clear idea of what I want to study, um, which was marine protected areas. I'd already started being interested in... Um, the marine environment when I was doing my first master's, um, but I was more interested in like what we call green tides, you know, like eutrophication and the health impacts of that. Um and then I started realizing that there was all this pollution happening within protected areas. And that's when it kind of clicked and I was like, no, I should be doing the conservation stuff. That's way more interesting than um than the environmental health. For me, for me it was more interesting. And that's where my master's thesis for my Uh, second master's basically created a blueprint for my PhD. So what I'm working on now. So which is marine protected area effectiveness in um, in the IHC. So I'm using the IHC as a case study. Yeah.
0: So I'm I saw that that you kind of like your master's is kind of like a jump off point in your PhD. And I want to come back to that. But something that you brought up just now that I like it makes sense in my head, but like you just put a really fine point on it was You were looking at the science side, like analyzing the problem versus like like studying like the green tides that you're saying versus looking at like the conservation side and like actually, you know, what is it? What do they say? Like pollution is kind of like you got to turn the faucet off instead of like cleaning it, like trying to like deal with an overflowing bathtub. So for me, that's kind of what your jump off point looked like was like instead of trying to like clean up this overflowing bathtub, like analyzing all the things that are wrong. I want to like turn the faucet off I want to look at the conservation side and see how we can even prevent this from happening so I just like I don't know for some reason that like really clicked in my head when you said it like that
1: yeah and I think that that's probably what you know now that you say it I'm thinking well that <laughs> makes sense so, you know maybe I didn't realize it at the time but what I had been realizing was um when I was looking into these green tides um I oh and for those who don't know uh, what a green tide is uh, yeah. <laughs> um, it basically uh it so this is an an issue that is worldwide, but um, we have in Brittany uh, because of uh, like because of slurry and like runoff. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, fertilizer, because uh, there is a lot of pig farming going on, and so that seeps into the waterways, and then that ends up um, in our um, ocean systems. And and those are packed with nutrients, and so an algae love nutrients, plants love nutrients, and they they thrive on that. And so the more plants you have oh sorry the, yeah well the more algae you have the more that can create a state of um hypoxia or anoxia so no oxygen gets in so it creates these mats at the top um of um like on top of of the water and so then that damages um ecosystems underneath so mm-hmm. it basically suffocates um anything that's living underwater um mm-hmm. so it's just if you could imagine just a big big blanket of, of algae that's kind of just suffocating everything that's underneath. But also, um, the, these release, um, like hydrogen sulfide and, um, and that is, uh, toxic to humans and there has been, um, uh, and other animals. I think what made the news in, uh, in, in Brittany was, um, wild boar that were dying, that were found dead on the, on, on the beach, you know, from, in, uh, from, from basically asphyxiation from. From these noxious gases, and a horse passed out, and I think some uh, a man ended up in hospital. So you know, and so as I was looking into this, um, I was re- I realized, but the problems up upriver. So what you know, why are we allowing this to happen? And what is what is the management that comes into play here? To as you said, you know, turn the faucet off so that we we don't have all this fertilizer seeping into our water systems and and then creating these um the these green tide. So we call it green tide because it's the ulva species that's green algae. But then you also have red tides. Um so it's, yeah. it really depends on where you are in the world. But um the more that happens, then we have what was called dead zones. And then there's you know there's nothing viable um in those areas. So
0: yeah. 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 We have uh there's red tides really prevalent on the west coast of Florida. So And every now and again, they trickle around, they'll catch the current and come up on the East coast. But usually they're a natural phenomenon. It happens, it happens naturally in in the West coast of Florida, except it's just been going gangbusters the last several years because of eutrophication, right? There's all these extra nutrient loads and like, it's just been built up over time. So now these like red tides that used to just be like, like a, a whimsical occurrence, right? Are like a huge problem. Um, so yep. it's a sim- similar thing and it's not, this isn't caused by analogy, it's caused by dinoflagellate, but similar phenomenon. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, okay. So I'm curious, like growing up on an MPA, is that like, did you know what, what it, it was a protected area growing up? And is that kind of what like shifted you into your current studies now?
1: Yeah. So, um, so fortunately for us, the, uh, the, the Marine Protected Area um, is known as, so I'm going to say it in French and then I will translate it. Um, so its official title is La Réserve uh, Naturelle Nationale uh, des Sept-Iles. So that means the National Nature Reserve of the Seven Islands. But it's not actually Seven Islands because it's a mis, like mistranslation from Britain, which is the indigenous language in, in Brittany, where, where I'm from, so in Northern France. But so it's an offshore MPA. It's about... Four four or five nautical miles offshore. Um so it's not offshore in the sense that it's you know it's very far, you can actually see it from the coast, but um you can't it you can't off walk.
0: of the shore, it is not connected. Yeah. <laughs>
1: exactly. Um because when you think offshore MPA, you're thinking more than twelve nautical miles and you're thinking, you know, um, but the this is a this is an offshore MPA and um and because the name reserve is actually in its title, and its designation, you know it's there's some connotation of protection and um and it's very very uh well known for its uh seabird populations so okay. it actually um it is the like one of the main um nesting sites for northern gannets um within um you know in france um it is one of the main uh, reproductive sites for um grey seals um we have a puffin colony um shearwaters um you know uh, what, else, what else do we have um oh what are they called razor bills in english um okay. and so there's loads of them but the the main the main one was the puffin and so um it's been it was designated in 1912 so it's really really old it's one of the first like you know uh protected areas i guess um you know in france uh in that sense um when i say the first now there was there was some before but this is one of the big I ones and the love- reason among the first.
0: Yeah, among <laughs> the first,
1: thank you. Um, one of the reasons was because um, uh, it used to be a, an, a like an attraction. You would go there to hunt puffins. Um, and so there was a whole tourism industry built around, like, hunting these puffins um, who came to nest on these, you know, on these islands. Um, and so um, obviously that's actually how the, LPO, which is the League for the Protection of Birds. And um, that's how they got their start. They're basically like the RSPB. Um, I don't know what the American equivalent is, but it's like a uh, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, okay. uh, BirdLife Bird International, that kind of... Um, okay. So We have the they, Audubon Society here. That's yes. Probably uh, yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> they got their start for protecting the puffins there. So it's really well known. And, um, and I've been fortunate enough to not only grow up in front of it, but have access to it because, um, you know, we take the boat out. And then I just did an internship last summer working on that reserve, um, which is actually um, prohibited to humans. Um, so except for one of the islands, the other ones um, are only accessible for scientific research and monitoring.
0: So, okay, so hang on, I want back up. So you said that they used to take people out and like do tourist hunting on these islands. And did they just kind of like decimate the puffin populations? And that's why it exactly. became a reserve. Okay. Yeah cool uh, even so now, not cool yeah. but so then you came full circle and that's the cool part like yeah to go back you
1: just had your internship there last yeah week. that was last summer i'm actually heading back to the reserve next week no this week uh well I'm heading back to france this week and um but yeah going to keep working and supporting the um the lpo uh, in their monitoring and and all that on the reserve mm-hmm. so Yeah. (laughs) Very full circle.
0: That's so cool. I love that. It's something that I've been like really thinking about a lot lately that like, it's like the, what you do locally that really, really matters. Right. And I love that. Like you're focusing on, you know, you have your spot in the IRC that you're really studying and that's kind of like a hyper local thing too. But like, for you to bring it back full circle to like hometown marine reserve, that's really cool.
1: Yeah, and like I, I, I don't know if um, internships are very popular in American PhDs, but um, oh. you know they're they're quite like we we have um, what's called a doctor doctoral training partnership, and they they uh, they basically fund us. UK Research and Innovation, and so they'll fund our internship um, if we want to do that or an overseas institutional visit or something like that. Um, so that's why I. I was actually working in their um they have like a bird hospital and I was volunteering there um for the reserve and then I found out about this internship scheme and I was like, Hey, <laughs> I'm from here and I'm working on MPAs. Hire me, please. <laughs> this seems like a great fit. <laughs> but it is it's I think that's I guess the takeaway is um a lot of people talk about you know how do we get into how can I get into marine conservation marine science and and all that and you know we always I've heard you talk about it Um uh, volunteering um is, is just it's a great door opener um for for opportunities um
0: yeah yeah it really is and then I don't know then you get to see what's going on like behind the scenes and then you just learn so much but just by like Taking that one little step, I love it. All right, why two master's degrees? We're gonna take a total um, left
1: turn. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, the uh, the reason was because my first master's degree was um was more geared towards like policy and mm. um and it was it was an inter it's an actually interdisciplinary um degree, but it was much more geared towards policy and law, which I am terrible at. Um, Did you find that out was- during your masters? Um yeah unfortunately and okay. i honestly, no, i mean i i don't know why i decided to go that right no actually i do know why my dad really wanted me to uh to be to to go into politics basically um and so i said okay because i didn't really know what i wanted to do or i did but it was like too late <laughs> and i actually started my first masters um doing public affairs with a concentration in um environment and then i realized that the university actually offered it was brand new brand new um uh program i think it had been running for a year or two when i got there um in environmental policy and so i was I, and because i was fortunate enough to have all these credits in sciences they you know they allowed me to to transfer into that program um which I don't think I would have gotten into otherwise. Um so this the reason I did my second masters was because that one was really geared on biodiversity and conservation and um mm. and management. So that I think that was definitely necessary to um to move into that sphere of conservation that I didn't have uh so much in the uh, the first master's, which was a lot about, you know, how do we shape public policy um to address you know climate change and um and other like eutrophication issues and and that and that so yeah so that's why i did a second master's um fortunately for me i didn't have to do two years i only had to do one year because in france a master's is two years yeah so there's another difference master's in france is two years um but if you already have a master's then you can get an uh then you don't need to do the first year over you can get a speciality um in uh in one year so that's yeah, so that was good. I didn't have to restart from the beginning. Yeah, if it's close enough, obviously, because if you're trying to do something completely left, to, you know, out of the field, um, it wouldn't be the same. But yeah, that's another difference in the United States and the UK. It's one year masters, if I'm not mistaken. Two, oh, it's two years. Okay, so in the UK, it's one year. So <laughs> yeah, it, the it's it's a bit weird how okay. the programs are. Um, you, I think you end up with the same number of years in the end, but <laughs> um. Yeah. From, I, uh, from bachelor's to master's okay. like f- in France it's two, uh, in the UK it's three years plus one year master's. So that's plus four after 18, age 18. And then in France, it's three years plus two. So that's five years.
0: Yeah. Well, in the U S it's six. If you wanted to get your master's.
1: I didn't, I didn't realize that. So
0: <laughs> yeah. And like, sometimes you can lump, there's some programs that will let you lump your master's and your PhD. If you know, you want to do that. Um, but I don't, I have not heard of anything that you where you can like lump your P <laughs> or your master's <laughs> and your bachelor's. So very interesting learning all the differences here. I'm I'm enjoying this. So I really want to go that- back. Like you you were like, oh, it's too late for me to pursue the conservation degree I want. And then you got into this master's that you were like, I oh, this is not for me. So it's really a myth, this myth of too late. Like you're going back and got your degree, your master's and the degree that you wanted. You're getting your PhD in that as well. And like your dad is going back con- contemplating law school at 75. Like there's just, it's a myth too late. is just a myth.
1: My <laughs> Mom got her PhD at 50. Who did? 55. My mom. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> my mom, um, we, my sister and I were old enough and she was like, I've been wanting, she actually started her first, she, she, she had tried to do a PhD, no, she started a PhD, uh, then got pregnant with my sister. Mm. And, and then that was it. It was the seventies. So, um, you know, she, she decided that she was just, you know, it, it was just too much. So, um, much. and it, it was, it was, and it's still, I think I've, I've got, you know, colleagues who have children during their PhD. It's, 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 it's a lot, you know? Um, so she'd always wanted to do her PhD. And, um, so when my sister, sisters and I were old enough, she decided well, now is the time, you know, I don't need to, I don't have to have childcare anymore. They're basically teenagers now. So, um, so she went back and, and and got her PhD in something completely different from her original plan. She was in law school. Um, but by the time she was back from maternity, I guess her topic was no longer relevant because laws change and, and all that. So, it, you know, it is, it's a very, it's a question of timing a lot when I think when it comes to your PhD to make sure that it's still relevant for 4 years later. Right.
0: Um right, that makes sense. But I love it. It's a myth. The too late <laughs> is just a myth. Like mm-hmm. but, and like another way to look at that, right, is like okay, I you know, even if you have to start all the way over on like get a different bachelor's like so so what, if that means like you're not stuck in a job that you hate or conversely like you get a job that you really enjoy and that you love and you're doing something that you're passionate about and you're learning things that you like. Then it's worth it, right? Otherwise, you're just stuck doing something that you're like meh, or that you hate. Worst case scenario, right?
1: I think that that, that the lockdowns, um, like the pandemic, has I've, I've noticed a massive a shift in some in a lot of my friends who either already have a degree um, and then decided during lockdown that they just weren't happy in in their jobs and decided they want to do something else, whether that be nursing or biotech or you know something something that they were actually interested in. Mm-hmm. And I think that because during the pandemic, a lot of schooling was online, mm-hmm. it made it a bit more accessible to people. And, you know, you could, like I said, go back to school while you're still working full time, while you're trying to, it's a lot of work, of course, right. but there's no, um, you know, if you put in the hours and you're passionate about it, it, I think it beats being in a job that you're not
0: passionate about. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's like a, it's a juice worth the squeeze, right? Yeah. That's what it is. <laughs> I love
1: it. Okay, so let's chat MPAs, why the Irish Sea. So originally I wanted to you know look at my backyard um, in the sense of the English Channel. Okay. But the English Channel is uh is very studied. There's loads of papers, a lot of research going on there. And um my partner is um he's from Northern Ireland and I spending time up here and I was realizing um yeah, you know, I'm not finding a lot of lot of literature on on this particular area. Um you and it's really groundbreaking. <laughs> Well, it's, it's interesting um uh see because it's it's under the jurisdiction of like six different countries. Um so you've got Irish um, Yeah, so you've got um well, when I say countries it's a it's the term like nation um because yeah. the UK is made up of four right. nations and then there's crown dependencies and and all that um but so you've got um so northern ireland the republic of ireland scotland wales england and the isle of man okay
0: uh
1: so which is a crown dependency which is so not part of the uk but also not not part of the uk yeah (laughs) yeah, it's
0: (laughs) i didn't i for some reason i just lumped the the isle of man with that but okay it's
1: it's it's, yeah i would like uh, yeah it's like guernsey and jersey that are crown dependencies and so they're they're kind of So they're not; they weren't part of the EU either. So, but they are. But people who live there are British. I'm not. It's very confusing, and like, and I spent time in Guernsey when I was younger. So, like, we had a house there. So, but I still don't. We'll just chalk it up to politics. (laughs) Still don't understand it. Um, but now it's interesting shift because because of of um, Brexit, um, now you have um the Irish Sea that is effectively the border between, um britain Mm. and the eu because northern ireland is still part of the single market um so the border is in the irish sea and um and now the irish sea also functions as a border like between the eu so the republic of ireland and the uk so Mm. in hitting in northern ireland so it's a very like politically charged area um and has become more so in the last few years but why i was really interested in it is because um it's uh there's just a lot of activity. There's a lot of shipping going on between um I the islands of Britain and Ireland. And so because that's where it's located, the Irish Sea is separates um Ireland from Britain, the two islands yeah. that make up the British Isles. Um, which I think we should probably rethink the name. <laughs> um, but uh yeah, so there's a lot of people who um who depend on the Irish Sea uh for you know, to get goods for fishing, um, for, you know, um, offshore wind and all these, uh, there's a lot of activity going on. So I thought, well, what impact does that have on our, you know, on the biodiversity there? And, um, and I started looking into the types of marine protected areas, uh, that were located within, you know, within the IRC limits. Um, and that prompted me to ask, well, how effective are these, um, how effective are these MPAs at um at meeting their biological conservation objectives um and to give a little bit of background about marine protected areas for those who don't know or um who don't remember so a marine protected area is um it's a protected area that has been designated um for the protection of marine uh, species habitats you have them on land as well you know they're just called protected areas, okay. but uh, we have the marine ones and they include um, coastal and offshore. So um, so a lot of people can live on a marine protected area without actually realizing it because it's part of, because uh, it does go up into the intertidal mm-hmm. sometimes, uh, to the limits. Uh, contrary to a terrestrial protected area um, where you can actually have, you could actually fence it if you really wanted to. You can't really fence marine protected areas. Um, so it's a bit difficult to know where it begins, and and depending on when you know on, on the tides, you know it's hard to it's just shifting all the time. But so that makes it difficult to um, to signpost and make sure people understand that those areas are actually protected. And because a lot of what is being protected is not visible with the naked eye because it occurs below sea level, um, it's also uh, it's kind of like an invisible protected area in some cases. And um, so. In order for a protected area, whether it be terrestrial or marine, to be effective, it needs to basically deliver for nature in the long term, uh, build ecological resilience um, and be effectively managed um, and monitored, um, and then obviously be equitable as well so that it doesn't uh, encroach on um, the lively, or l- the livelihoods of people who... Um, who are directly, you know, within its vicinity or who rely on that area for uh, for their livelihoods. Um, so you're looking at, for marine protected areas, one of the big ones would be obviously um, fishing, um, some recreational activities, um, but also your offshore, um, you know, wind farms and... Right and you know energy industries as well so trying to find that balance any, any sort between, of like
0: human disruption of the natural yeah. world right what so kind of yeah. like guardians? Yeah. and yeah. there's different levels right so like some yeah. are just like no touch no touchy you don't yeah. like some don't even let boats in um and then there's you know on up they i, I don't even know what like the loosest standard i guess it seems like the wrong um, term like, <laughs> but,
1: yeah like, i think it's like um partially oh there's like partially or partially protected yeah. i think um yeah minimally protected, minimally protected. Would be, yeah. yeah um so it goes from minimally protected all the way to fully protected and then depending on the type of designation it could be like you said no boat no boats allowed no extractive uses whatsoever mm-hmm. all the way to you can actually dredge in this area which <laughs> so for <laughs> me i'm protected? like
0: yeah why how does it even yeah how is it even protected if you can dredge but
1: anyway, okay. <laughs> yeah. You're technically not supposed to, but unfortunately, and that comes back to this issue of management and monitoring. Mm-hmm. So it's one thing to say, right, I'm protecting this area, but then you put, you know, you, it goes through the legal channels and says, right now this area is on paper protected, but then there's no actual um, management, monitoring, or enforcement of you know, the, the restrictions in place. So what you have is what we, um, in the conservation world call a paper park. Mm -hmm. So it exists on paper, but it, it's not actually doing its job whatsoever. Um, and so, so that's what I was kind of looking at through my, the beginning of my PhD was looking at how, how much of the IHC is made up of paper parks Mm -hmm. and, um, and whether or not, designating you know if they have multiple designations because there are designations at multiple levels so that could be like your local one um so like your marine conservation zones in the uk and then your natural 2000 sites which are you know uh, european legislation and then your Ramsar uh, wetlands which are international Mm -hmm. um so depending on how many of these um legal agreements there are does that mean that we have better protection? And uh, my research found that, yeah, there's a there's a uh, a weak positive correlation between the number of um, pieces of paper you've signed, basically, and uh, the fact that there might be more funding and management happening in those areas um, because they're more uh, visible. Mm-hmm. So they're more popular because um, they have- Because they have all, they know, have all these different
0: organizations agreeing and yeah. signing all the papers that yeah. they'll help protect it or that it should be protected anyway. That's really interesting. So, in the north, in the Irish Sea, like how much of it is like truly protected? Did you did your research kind of like look into that? Or like, you know, you said you look into it. Like, how much are these actually like paper parks versus protected? So, did you find that answer?
1: So, um, it, there actually aren't any what we call like. Well, there are not in the Irish Sea, but there are uh, in the UK, but in the Irish, there are no, um, like, no-take zones. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what we would call, you know, like, your reserve. So a marine reserve really means, like, you're not allowed to, um, you're not allowed to fish or do anything there. We don't have any of those. Um, and um, we have, like, no-take areas that might be co- located within a protected area. Mm-hmm. So, for example, at Strangford Lock, which is in Northern Ireland, um, one of, uh, so they, it had a really important um, modiolus, so horse muscle reef, um, and so those got decimated and um and so they they're trying to uh to rebuild them now mm-hmm. uh, to restore them so those areas are no no-go zones where those reefs are but the rest of the lock even though it's a protected area you can go to so um you know it's kind of like a, a no-go zone and no-take zone in the middle of an area that's got a lesser protection mm-hmm. um and so it's it's a bit confusing especially trying to know where exactly it is and yeah. um and and unfortunately a lot of people might go and and you know take their boat out or kayak or jet ski or whatever and not realize that they are in a protected area um because um because the name isn't there it's you know you just call it the place that it is it's not like the national reserve of mm-hmm. um and that um and that creates a lot of problems not mostly because people are just aren't, aren't aware that there are restrictions. Um, so like a lot of, uh, a lot of people might be doing things that are technically illegal, but they don't realize it because they don't realize that this is a protected area. And that's a problem with awareness and communication, um, from marine protected area managers or the governments to, to make sure people are aware of what's in their own backyard. Um, yeah.
0: Hmm. That's really interesting. So, I read part of, I don't know if it was your master's or your PhD, but something that really stuck out to me was that stakeholders, that you you found that stakeholders just had no idea that they were stakeholders, that they had a say. So a stakeholder is anybody that, like, finds value, basically, in these waters. So whether they, like, use them for recreation or fishing or whatever it is, like, you if you go out into your local park or beach your a stakeholder like that's that's the moral of the story um and so that you're fi- you're finding that people just think that they have no say in it could you talk a little bit about that um
1: so that was a, so that's the second second empirical chapter of my phd um okay. and i was looking at equity um in marine protected areas because um the so a little bit of background before i explain yeah. what um what were you talking about uh, so the iec targets of the convention on biological diversity the cbd the target 11 was calling for effective and equitable management of protected areas and we talk a lot about effectiveness um in terms of um you know the natural world and biophysical features um but we don't really talk about um the human dimension the 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 equity and so i was i, I my research was part of a larger program looking at protected areas around the world, uh, terrestrial and marine, and looking at the level of equitable uh, governance and management. And so through that program, that that was with the International Institute for Environment and Development. And so I looked, I took three sites in the IHC and I um, had uh, surveys and semi-structured interviews with stakeholders and realized that, um, you know, a lot of them didn't realize that um, that. Like I said, they weren't living on that. They were living on an MPA and um, they didn't understand what the rules and regulations or they just weren't aware. No, sorry. It's not that they can't understand. They just didn't know um, what they can and cannot do. And I also uh, realized that when, you know, where people are, are aware there's uh, that there is an MPA their opportunities to participate in any decision making or consultations are very limited mm-hmm. and are more of a tick boxing exercise than actually including local people local communities mm. um, in any decision making that's being made um so there's a really there's a lack of transparency there about why management decisions are being made um, and how people can get, like, why people can't get involved in, in, in those decisions, because especially for local aquaculturists, local fishers, people whose livelihoods depend on that, you know, that coastal area. Um, so that could be, you know, a dive center or something like that. Any kind of restrictions put in place are going to directly affect their livelihoods. Mm -hmm. And so they need to be part of that conversation. And those stakeholders Generally, want to see a healthy area. You know, they're not there to exploit it uh, because then, then there's nothing for them. You know, there's, their their livelihoods is over if they can't um, take in some of the ecosystem services that are provided by that area. So you want like that balance. Um, and unfortunately, they're not involved in a lot of the decision making that uh, that's happening. So the there's very low equity. I guess is was the conclusion of, of that paper. Hmm. Okay.
0: Yeah. And it just like, it's so important to get involved. Like I talk about it. I know I talk about it. It just is like, just to know what's going on in your community. And like, I realized like, kind of what you said, the delivery methods of education, right? Just like actually trying to include people were lackluster. But sometimes that's like, it takes like that one person to like seek out the information to broadcast it because it just takes a little bit of, um, I don't know, like a little bit of initiative, I guess, on like your part. If you If ha- If you live in an area that you care about and like you want you know, what's going on, what is going on in the area that you carry about, care about. And the things that are going on behind the scenes that you can help bring to light to people that like are influenced by it. Um, Because, yeah, we do live in an age where things, you know, whether it's intentional or not, you know, things happen where people are just kind of like swept by the wayside and then are just along for the ride because we are all in it together.
1: And there's also like there's been a lot of research recently in the last few years about um, about what this lack of equity does for conservation mm-hmm. and um, and people are less likely to respect you know restrictions and follow the rules if you know if they feel like they've been excluded from decision making mm. so so that's also part of it is if you really want to protect our you know protect our oceans protect our environment you need to have open conversations with the people who are directly affected by any uh, by by conservation measures and you see that a lot more in the terrestrial uh, because people can actually be displaced um from uh, from areas that are going to be put aside for conservation um but you do see a bit of it in the marine sec- uh, the marine site and that's what i was trying to highlight um, through that study
0: right that makes sense
1: so what
0: was like your biggest takeaway from your research <laughs>
1: So, um, well, I'm still in the thick of it. I'm, so my, 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 my PhD is looking at, so marine protected area effectiveness, but the role of ecosystem management, um, within MPAs, um, and using that term ecosystem management in its widest sense possible. So including the human dimension. Mm. So not just looking at, you know, habitats, um, or, you know, species, but finding out how do we find, how do we include, everybody in this ecosystem make sure it functions um, to deliver for nature while also providing the ecosystem services that people have come to depend on. Mm -hmm. Um, So right now, so that was the, so I have three studies within my PhD. It's kind of like a three paper PhD, but we don't really do that um, at, at King's um so you have three publications and then you kind of have to link them together so okay. it's not here's three publications i'm stapling them together and then i'm done okay. uh, some 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 universities do that um kings does not so um the last uh, the last chapter that i'm currently working on is looking at um you know effective monitoring mm-hmm. uh, of difficult to monitor habitats um and i'm using mudflats as a as a case study um so looking at how do we monitor, uh, how do we protect what we can't monitor, basically, Mm. Uh, because there's, so with mudflats in particular, it's, there's the cost, but there's also the danger associated with mudflats because obviously um, you can sink into them. So um, it is difficult to survey. So I'm looking at different uh, proxy data. So looking at um, uh, benthic species um, and looking at uh, shorebirds and their populations and how can they tell us uh, what can they tell us about the the health of that um of that system of that um habitat um and you can also use remote sensing as well um it's a bit more difficult with mudflats because of the tidal patterns and available data from satellites mm-hmm. uh because you know obviously they have to hit right at the exact mo- uh, you know the proper time and um and you but you know using drones anything that can really help us see oversee these large expanses of um of habitats that need protection mm-hmm. so i'm looking at from a management point of view how do we um make decisions to protect these areas like if we don't know what state they're they're actually in and unfortunately uh mud flats in general in in the eu um or in the in europe are not in a great state so um that's one of the reasons i also selected them for my um for my case study. And I'm looking at those in Scotland and up in Northern Ireland at uh, two sites that have that are, you know, really good um, rich areas for for mudflats, large expansive mud flats. Um so that's what I'm looking at now. And I'm trying to tie all that together, looking at designation. So, you know, your the designation management, looking at the equity, and then also looking at the monitoring of um of marine protected areas to get a sense of um of how effective they are basically. Okay.
0: And when you're talking about mudflats, is this kind of like an intertidal zone between like the sea and the land? Okay. Yeah.
1: yeah so you so they'd be in like estuary areas. Mm-hmm. Um and so they uh so they it's you know uh, fine sediment, muddy sediment, mm-hmm. and um so they're they're covered by um by by the tides, obviously at high tide. Um so it is really intertidal. We're not looking at salt marshes, which would be a bit higher up. Right. Um so there's no apart from some um like biofilm, that's a type of uh, you know algae. Uh, there's no vegetation really that grows there, except for some maybe some invasive species and sometimes some um, some seagrass beds. Mm-hmm. But uh, what the what really attracts the birds, uh, the overwintering birds, is um, all the little critters that live within the mud. Mm-hmm. So your annelids, so you're like your worms and your uh, mollusks mm-hmm. and all that, and they they basically uh, flock to these areas in the winter time um, uh, to to feed and roost and, you know, rest. So that's where they migrate to. And these are species that usually come up from the Arctic. So mm-hmm. your, um, your Canada geese, mm-hmm. for example, mm-hmm. uh, your Arctic skewers. Um, so they, they come in, um, and overwinter in, in, um, in England, in the UK and, um, in Northern, in Northern Europe. Some of them actually do go a bit further South, but, uh, that's, that's where they spend their, their winter. So it's really important for, for them to have, um, you know, a rich supply of food mm-hmm. so that they, um, they can build their energy back up to fly back home. Um, right. and, uh, and so that can be used as an indicator of, um, of ecosystem health and, um, and habitat health to make, uh, if, if the birds are in healthy numbers and we're seeing, um, uh, the, not the right, but a, a good, um, evenness and diversity of, um, of, um, benthic fauna. Mm. Okay,
0: you are covering like a huge (laughs) swath of information with your papers. I'm like kind of blown away right now about the extent of your papers. (laughs) It's a lot. So, uh, where are you? I
1: don't. You just started two years ago. Three. I forget COVID. (laughs) I forget what 2020 was. So, um, I started my PhD in 2018. Oh, and okay, okay. So So I started almost done yeah or you get kicked um, out <laughs> yeah so i am um, so i have i um you can interrupt um you can interrupt for internships or for Um. Uh, you know life reasons oh, okay um, so you're there. like i
0: am intentionally taking a pause yeah so it like and that's okay so your 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 uh your countdown stops <laughs>
1: yes so like for this summer when i'm going back to the reserve and working on some side projects i'm interrupting i'm not working on my phd for the next three months and then that will add three months to my submission date um and some people you know some people do that because they found a really great job offer for a one-year contract so Mm -hmm. they'll stop their phd for one year and then come back um or if you go on maternity leave or if you have a health issue or um or the internship for example um you don't you can interrupt, but they, but when you do interrupt, um, it means you're no longer a student and there can be some implications for your visas and funding. So, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's not, not, it doesn't work for everybody. Um, so I You can't just do it to do it. It's it's a little more complicated than that. (laughs) And I was, so my submission, my original submission date was this September. Um, and then COVID happened. So we all got an automatic three months. Um, and then I've, have six months of interruptions so <laughs> i should be fin- i have to hard deadline submit by about this time next year okay. but i'm fortunate enough that um because i already have two published chapters mm-hmm. it reduces my writing up dissertation wise because it's just a question of weaving it all together um, it's still going to be a lot of work yeah. but it i'm not starting from scratch um some people have to to write the entire manuscript. I've already have some of it, Perfect. you know, done. So you, that you're works. halfway up the mountain. Three <laughs> quarters up. Right. I'm, I'm at, a, I'm at, a, I'm at a base camp right now. I'm hanging out. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect.
0: <laughs> so you're involved with several different organizations, which was really fun to pan through, but one that really highlighted, you just did a 30 by 30 uh, report with the British Ecological Society could you chat a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. Um. So, the British Ecological Society, first of all, is, um, as its name suggests, it's a you know professional membership, and um, I believe it's one of the the oldest um, ecological societies in the world. Um, and they were so the UK government has, um, kind of followed the the global trend of um, putting up uh, area based conservation targets. Um, so 30%, so 30 by 30 means 20, uh, by 2030, having 30% protected areas, land and sea. Um, so for the UK, um, and I believe the con- the convention on biological diversity is also echoing that there's uh, the IUCN, there's a lot of talk right now about this 30 by 30. Yeah.
0: And, it's, um, yeah, I think it's like, I think the whole, all the conservation organizations across the globe are trying to push for that. Yeah. So, Yeah
1: and um so what we wanted to find out was what is the state of protected areas in the uk currently um and uh you know are these is this 30 by 30 what we need to be able to uh deliver for nature in the united kingdom and um what we what we found there's oh i can't remember how many there's at least a dozen authors um early career uh scientists and researchers um and so we were looking at both terrestrial and uh, marine protected areas. And the the summary of it is that we need to be careful about what protection, you know, what what, what do we consider protection? Um, so, you know, when we talked about minimally protected paper parks and fully protection, um, because it's really easy to say, right, well, we've already hit our marine target. We have. We're at, I think, 38% or something like that of marine um area in um in protected areas in the UK but are they but does that mean they're really protected mm-hmm. and you know it's 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 looking at that terminology and ensuring that the government if it's going to pledge um you know to meet this target it needs to back that up with um with funding um in place to adequately manage and monitor and enforce um the protected areas that are in place mm-hmm. um, and unfortunately that's that's not the case for for a lot of marine pro- uh, protected areas in the UK in general. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what we were working on, and that was released just it was Earth Day. So yeah, in April. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and yeah, I, I actually don't know what what the government's response to it has been, uh, or if there has been. But I do know it was it made it was picked up by quite a few news outlets here. Um, and uh, yeah, I just I hope it makes people a bit more aware of you know uh, the commitments that are, that are needed to, um, to make sure that our, our biodiversity is protected.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. All right. At the end of each episode, I like to ask a series of questions and for listeners, Constance has listened to all the episodes of the podcast, <laughs> which just makes me so happy. And um, so she, so you're familiar with how this is going to go and we're going to start off with, in my opinion, <laughs> the hardest question What's your favorite sea creature, and why? and it could be for today because mine truly changes every single day <laughs>
1: so I um, so for those who can actually see the video, there's a massive pinniped so a seal sitting behind me, <laughs> and I uh, no I love I love pinnipeds, um I love seals, um that's just my favorite, so I think it's my favorite animal full stop. they're just to me they're kind of like um, was it dog mermaids Yes, or like cat mermaids? Um, yeah. And I've been fortunate enough to be able to like dive with them and, and all that. So, um, yeah, I just, I really, I I just find them fascinating creatures. So yeah, I would have to say pinnipeds, but I do have a soft spot for shorebirds and seabirds because I work a lot with them as well. So, um, so yeah.
0: (laughs) Is there one that's more charismatic than the others for your shorebirds? I,
1: i i really like the gannets i mean the everyone talks about puffins and yes they are adorable like when you see them in their wee burrows they're so cute and i think people overestimate how big they are they're smaller than a pigeon they're tiny um but the gannets are just they're really cool looking and they have this like insane dive where they just kind of like straight down when they when they go when they fish they just and um and yeah, no, I just, it's like a torpedo it goes straight down. It looks really cool. And, um, and yeah, I've been fortunate enough to like spend part of my summer around 20,000 like couples of them, which is really cool <laughs> uh, during the breeding season. So, um, yeah, no, I think they're, they're really interesting birds and, uh, they like kiss each other, like by rubbing their Aww. beaks. It's really cute. That is cute. That is
0: cute. So I've had one interaction with a gannet actually washed up on shore here. And it was like severely emaciated. So I called our local animal hospital and they came out. And um, what I learned that day is that gannets, at least when they come here and are like tired and hungry, are very sassy. So like this bird was like not having our efforts. Like we had to like get it to bite a towel. Cause it was trying to bite us so we had to get it to bite the towel and then like wrap the towel around its head and its whole body and then carry it to the car i needed to go into to go to the hospital to get fat and fly away but i was like
1: oh you're a sassy big bird <laughs> yeah and um yeah and i i so working in that that bird hospital i've, I've been nipped and bitten and, <laughs> and all things <laughs> yeah yeah you, you I don't know how you say it. Like, I remember one day I, I came back and I was and I had a p- p- plaster on my arm and they're like, What happened? I was like, I I, I got bit by a gull. Is it bit? Was I bit? I don't know because they don't have teeth. I don't know what you would call it, but it was definitely like I was bleeding. <laughs> I got attacked by a gull.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I was
1: just trying to help you.
0: <laughs> he was trying to give you kisses. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Do you have a fun fe- uh, seal story? You said you've dove with them. It's like um, I've I've kayaked with them. I've se- been next to them, but I've not actually been in the water with them. I think this is super cool.
1: So I've got a really good seal story, and I've a really good um, Lara skull story as well. Okay. <laughs> so the, the 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 seal story is pretty much a traditional story. Like we, it was actually when I first started diving, and um, uh, there is this one uh, seal. Her name is Moustache, which means mustache, moustache, which means like mustache. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and um she's been hanging about for for years and uh so she's she's used to people and um she just come out and so I'm sitting on the seabed and she grabs the lead diver's fins and starts and pl- and then starts playing with it and then realises it's not food and then she was no longer interested in us and just left <laughs> but it's it's weird because she's used to being around people so I don't know if it was her trying to play or you know if what was going on it wasn't like she had never seen humans before and she was very aware like actually they're pretty much friends at this point mm-hmm. he's very used to her so um but it was it was really cool um just being able to be that up you know just her there and just watching her and her watching us and um because I've seen them mostly obviously out on boats and that was like the first time underwater and it was just I think I don't know what I was expecting the size was pretty big like you know much bigger than i i thought but i and i i should have been a bit more afraid i think mm-hmm. you know in retrospect because they do have pretty sharp teeth yeah. um but you yeah, know that was uh that was the first encounter and and yeah I hope to get some some more encounters this summer as well That's um so cool. when i go back to diving um and then as for the skull, this um we want to talk about sassy <laughs> um when so during my internship last year part of what we uh what we do is we um do a bit of awareness and um when tourists come onto the one island that they're allowed to of the marine protected area we will answer questions about local um what you know what they're seeing so the local birds that they can see uh the seals because they can see the seals from from the island as well and um there was this juvenile i want to say it was a um Argentatus, the, the, is that the European her- herring gull? The, the silver one? Maybe. Uh, Laris, yeah. So yeah, the Laris Argentatus, um, uh, which is, uh, so it was a juvenile, so it's brown and I, it's, it's, uh, wing was a bit wonky. So we're looking at it and we're just like, oh, poor thing. Like, what do we do? Do we like, do we rescue it or do we leave it? Because sometimes you have to make that decision between do we leave it or do we not? Can because we we're all yeah we're offshore at this point so getting it back to the hospital is a, is a handling um and so we spent the day kind of just watching him and um you know people were like you know feeding him and and all that and cuz you know we were like oh I don't think he's eaten in a while and so we were just kind of not sure what to do with him and he, the the next day he was back there you know his wings all weird he's not flying anywhere he's getting really close to people and his wings just like drooping and At the end of the day, we're like, right, you know what, we're just going to, we're going to leave him and, uh, we'll see, you know, next week, you know, on when we come back the next week, um, if he's still there. And at the end of the day, he was asking for food and asking for food. And at the end of the day, he like, wasn't getting any food and just flew off. Like his wing magically got back (laughs) together. so he spent like three days tricking us into thinking he was like injured to get food when there was absolutely nothing wrong with this animal. And this is a juvenile. So he wasn't that old, obviously. And if he had already learned to, I don't know if he had seen.
0: Right. Where did he learn yeah.
1: that? I don't know. But like, we were stumped. And, you know, we've spent days and, you know, weeks around these animals. So, you know, we we were concerned for it. And no, I think he was just like, yeah, making, you know, taking, taking the mick. So taking the piss out of us. Oh my God. <laughs>
0: That's clever, clever bird.
1: Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean they are. They, they're really smart. Like once you spend time with these these birds, you're like, hmm, yeah. You especially, I think any Aussie would tell you that. Like they know they want food. They will come up with you know <laughs> some movies. way of getting it, of yeah. tricking you into into feeding them. So <laughs> that's
0: awesome. Those are great seabird stories. there's seabird story and seal story. Alrighty. <laughs> What does the ocean mean to you?
1: Um so because I've grown up on the ocean it's part of my life um and I I honestly can't imagine not being around the ocean on a regular basis but to me it really means um I think it's it's like a lifeline for for the planet um you know we we, we can't survive none of us can without without our oceans without having healthy oceans um oceans feed I think what something like 3 billion people on this planet um you know they are responsible for um delivering the essential ecosystem ecosystem services that we need mm-hmm. so um you know i that to me it i can't imagine like life without our oceans mm-hmm. um yeah so that's i know it's, it's very like a bit poetic not poetic but like a bit corny but that's um yeah that's how i feel
0: <laughs> It's a it's a poetic and corny question. But I love hearing people's answers. righty, blank check. If you were given a blank check, unlimited funding for any project or projects up to three, what would you use the monies for?
1: So I would really um, you know, I've talked about the, the limits of the funding um and the lack of resources that we have for marine protected areas. And um, yeah, if I had a blank check, I would make sure that every marine protected area in the world was an actual marine protected area and that it had a management plan and a management team and regular monitoring and enforcement um you know making sure that they're meeting their conservation objectives um so yeah so that would be you know i i don't even need to think twice about what i would use that money on and if it's a blank check and i can do it on every single marine protected area around the world i would do that (laughs)
0: That's a great one. It really is. It's so important. And that's like, you, it comes back to your uh, park papers, right? Like if you if you can say it's protected, but if people don't know it's protected, so the education side, or if like people don't care and there's no bite, there's no enforcement to make sure that it stays protected. Like it's just kind of, it's a park paper, like you said, or paper park. So paper. Yeah. Paper park. (laughs) So yeah, great, great use of the funds. I'm still working on finding this blank check, but I love asking the question. (laughs) What is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could be a super fun, amazing day out in the water, like great interactions with wildlife, or it could be just a day where things happened and it makes a really great story now.
1: So this isn't like when I, when I was thinking about this, actually my goal story was my favorite field story to tell, but I will tell another story that, um, is funny and tragic at the same time. Um, so I was doing surveying on the mud flats up in Strangford lock one day, and there's a lot of, you know, there's uh, a lot of pollution, um, like rubbish around. And, um, and as I'm like surveying and I was just, I was looking at, um, uh, you know, looking at, um, discharge and, and all, all these other things, but like, uh, just noting how much, how many plastic bottles there were as well. And all, and all these things just kind of give, getting a lay of the land. Um, and I found a tanner in the mud. So like a 10 pound note. And, um, now our new notes, our new bank notes are made out of like their polymer. So like they're plastic. Oh. And, um, so that's why it was just sticking. It's, I still have it actually. I carried around with me as like a, as a, as a memory of it yeah. but it um it it made me think about plastic pollution because so this is a 10 pound banknote right it's got a monetary value to it i could go and use it in a shop right now um but now they've switched from paper notes to polymer notes so plastic notes and those notes obviously because they're plastic they don't disintegrate so it's great when you put your jeans in the wash and you forgot that you had you know 20 pound in your pocket because it won't disintegrate but it's not great when it ends up in the environment. So I was just, you know, it got me to thinking about like, um, about how we're just using so much plastic and creating more plastic, um, by making our banknotes out of plastic. So there's, you know, there's the good side of it because you can't tear them either, you know, but, um, but yeah, and then they end up like, I have no idea how this, it was in the mud, it was sticking out of the mud and I pulled it out and I have no idea how it ended up on this flat, you know, like in the intertidal, um, but it clearly survived from somewhere. I don't think it fell out of anybody's pocket because this is not an area like that people would be walking on. Um, it's not a pleasant walk. It's a dangerous walk. So, um, so yeah, it made me really think about, um, about our plastic use and, um, yeah. And I mean, I got 10 pound out of it.
0: Right. <laughs> I was say, so somebody dropped it in the water most likely. Right. And it washed up into this mud flat and nature was like, thank you for cleaning this area. note <laughs> But that's a really interesting point. I don't I can still rip my dollars, so I don't think we've gone to polymers here in the States. But they I don't know if they have something special in them anyway, because you can definitely wash them and like they like you can tell they've been washed, but (laughs) they'll stay together. So maybe there's some sort of polymer in it. But that's a really good point. Like money money didn't used to be like that, right? It was paper. Before that it wasn't even paper, it was Gold, right? It was metal. It wasn't. It was things from the earth that could go back to the earth. Interesting point. But I really like that you nature gave you something and you carry it around like a totem.
1: <laughs> and I, yeah, and I think a lot of I, I know, like I, um, in Canada, um, the the banknotes already out, like they were already plastic, and in Australia, New Zealand. So there's like I'm you know, there's been a
0: US. Then I just.
1: So no, 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 like they're, they're like in the U S like they're still paper, paper, like, you know, the paper, like the polymer ones are really shiny and you, you cannot tear them up. You, you cannot split it in oh, half okay no, um, I can definitely and same with way. the euros. And I'm wondering if there's going to be a shift towards these kinds of banknotes. Yeah. Um, Cause even in Papua New Guinea, they use, like I, I went there and I was like, they already have polymer banknotes here too. So, you know, it's, it's, it's making its way around the world and it's just, you know, we're talking about reducing our plastics use but then we're Mm. printing plastic money now. So
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's something to think about. Something I never really thought about, right? Like we focus on what we consume, like the straws and all of that. But like when it comes to cash, hmm, interesting, all these things reduce the plastic use. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, on that note, kind of, At the end of each episode, I like to leave the audience with a conservation topic to go forth and bring into the world. What would you like the audience to bring take from your episode today?
1: So I'm not going to go over plastic because I've heard so many people on this podcast talk about plastic, and it's great. Like it really. We just talked about it. (laughs) We just just talked about it. Um, But I guess I've got two conservation asks. The first one is make sure that you eat sustainable seafood. Like so, just make sure find out where you're eating it from. If you are, if you do eat fish. Um, it's really important because I've heard, was it C-spiracy and they were like, oh, everybody go vegan and all that. And I'm like, that's just, that is not, that is not possible for more than half of our planet's population. They just cannot, they, they can't afford to eat synthetic sushi. So, um, yeah. And I also
0: so, have concerns. I'm like, well, how is this actually manufactured? What is it in it? How like how is that sustaining our planet? Like I have issues with this. So anyway, that's a whole nother topic. So, yeah, yeah so
1: sustainably sourcing, like making using like the Good Fish Guide by the Marine Conservation Society. I don't know if that works outside the UK, but it can be a good indicator of, you know, what's. Um, what's sustainability caught uh, near you and like what's in season, Not you know, non-season, but like where, what, what is available right now and, um, yeah. and where it's come from. Um, I'm sure there's equivalents in the U- U.S. and in other places. Um, and also, I think it's important to like eat local uh, because you're, you're also helping, you know, fishers, like fishers' livelihoods. And, and uh, like a lot of my friends are fishers and I, I will eat seafood that's literally been fished outside my front door and that, you know, there's nothing better than that because there's no real carbon footprint to, to the transport there. So eat local and make sure it's sustainably sourced. Um, I think that that's, you know, just making those, those choices or when you're in restaurants, making sure asking like where it's from, um, and that it's been labeled correctly if you do know, um, because sometimes they'll label something that isn't that, uh, to sell it. So yeah, just be more conscious if you do decide to, um, to consume shellfish or, 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 seafood in general. Um, and then my other ask is, um, is to write to your MPs. So I don't know what the equivalent, your representatives or whoever it is. Uh, yeah. Your representatives. Um, and just tell them that you support, you know, um, sustainable fishing, that you support, uh, marine protected areas. And, um, you know, if you see, um that your government or um your state or you know your city is allowing um you know not so friendly practices um and that are having impacts on the marine environment um you know make your voices heard that you know it's just it's sending an email or letter or joining a you know a group or something like that we've have a lot of um of uh, like small activist groups but that do um some great work up here and uh Responding to consultations, if you do find them, that's also a good thing. You know, it doesn't require a lot of time. Um, You don't need to be a marine biologist, but just showing, you know, your governments that you care, um, I think that'll go a long way. Yes,
0: I agree wholeheartedly. (laughs) And I think going back to your, like, seafood, just knowing the source, right? And even if, like, I think asking the question, if the people who, you know, if you're going to a seafood market, hey, like you know where this was caught, how it was caught? Because that's like, that's the important part, right? Yeah. Um, and if they don't know the answer, I think just even simply just asking that question and showing that people care, they want to know is super important. Um, but then, yeah, like speaking and like making sure that your representatives in your community know how you feel about things, because that's, that's how we get it done. If listeners want to find you, connect with you, learn more about you, where's the best place to do so?
1: um so i have a website um it's constance chere at uh dot no, com mm-hmm. or uh, twitter at Constance Charest. um so yeah uh that would be the main places that you would uh you would find me um you could google me and only i come up because nobody has my name <laughs>
0: Or or if they it's a great if, name and it's
1: super unique. It's 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 awesome. <laughs> if somebody does have my name, they are not in my fields. So pretty right. <laughs> so sure it's it's me. Um but yeah, I'm I'm if I'm happy to answer questions if um uh, in French too. Somebody's listening and they, they want to chat in French, you can do that in Spanish. <laughs> so. awesome. Perfect.
0: Well Constance, thank you so much for being on the show. I really enjoyed chatting with you today.
1: Me too. This has been great. So thank you for for having me. Yeah.
0: Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.